Hello and welcome. Today, continuing on the track of DevOps, with us today, Brian Finster. Adrian, hey. Brian, hello. How's it going? Hello. I don't think Brian needs introductions, but those, at least for, for the minority of our, our live participants that may want to know a little bit more about you, Brian. Uh, yes, I'm Brian Finster. I'm an engineer at Defense Unicorns. We solve really hard delivery problems. Um, things like how do you deliver software? You know, how do you do CD to a submarine? Um, secure environments, that sort of thing. Before that, I worked for Walmart for a whole, whole bunch of years. First in supply chain, later on in platform, um, and then started up the DevOps Studio at Walmart because we were how do we how do we show teams how to do continuous delivery like hands on in their environment. So I'm really passionate about continuous delivery um, because when we piloted CD, I discovered that development didn't have to be pain. For the first time, development wasn't painful. Adrian, a quick answer from you. Yes, Adrian, I hope you know me from yesterday. I'm a CTO talking about things, uh, similar things like DevOps, continuous delivery, a lot about culture. So I'm always interested in getting, getting some value out of your company. But it is important for me that a company focuses on the right things, especially when it's tech driven. And this is what I'm talking about mostly. So I'm try always trying to connect the business with the tech and not not too deep into tech, not too deep into um, business, but, you know, bridging the gap. So this is basically All right. And I'm Dennis. I'm combining traditional life coaching with technologists. So sometimes they say I'm a walking bullshit detector. And what I like to do well is sort of combine the, combine the complex fields in software delivery and software engineering, software production. Usually that's leadership, architecture, and the human qualities, the human competencies that go with it. Today's topic is based on an article that Brian wrote, a series called Five Minute DevOps. Those of you who are with us live and would like to read it while we're discussing it, uh, here's a quick link for it. And I believe my technology does not allow me to post on LinkedIn, so I'll post that twice. Apologies, YouTube viewers, I think you'll get this link twice. But there's the link if you want to open it and follow it in the background. Today's topic is sort of handling a much more narrower problem than yesterday. Yesterday, we were sort of discussing continuous delivery as a whole, and we had to be us on to discuss matters of coaching and sort of digital transformation from a leadership perspective as a whole. What does a team need to deliver? Does a team struggle with producing software? Does a team struggle with delivering software? Is it somewhere in between? Is there some issue that we're ignoring? Today, it seems we'll have a much more business and delivery oriented discussion. I mean, maybe. I think this is the why behind continuous delivery. The why behind continuous delivery. I think that's a good synopsis for, for today's mm -hmm. episode. Yeah, because people want to transform the why and people want to do agile why. I mean, it, this is what's the fundamental problem we're trying to solve is really the thrust I was trying to get across with, with this. So where do you want to, how do you want to go about it? Well, I can, I can check out, I can read out the three wrongs real quick. You mentioned in the article, number one, the idea is wrong. Number two, we'll misunderstand during the development. And number three, the users needs change before we deliver. And, yeah. and this sounds very lean to me. You know, this sounds like very, very lean. <laughs> I bet many people can already identify with at least two of those three points. Uh, let's say align them to their pain points, which they already have. And if they don't be able to do that, they will be after the show, I guess. 
Well, you know, in the, the personal journey I went on, because I grew up a traditional software developer, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now, is that you get requirements. Or actually, my first job, I was, this, this, was, this was wonderful, because in the early 90s, except tooling, we were DevOps. I would call the, the, I would talk to my customer who would be, who wanted modifications to our core system and gather requirements from them. I'd put together a quick, hey, it's going to take, you know, two or three days to put this together. I'd demo it to them after I got it done. I'd install it. I'd make all the database changes. It was just, it was just me, you know, and, and just, I got to deliver fast. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And, and then I moved to an organization where I got to deliver once a quarter and it just sucked the life out of me. And with like waterfall process, like really like they sent us through PMI training, like the real thing. Right? And then they brought in agile and it was just the same thing in two weeks sprints. But the mindset was always that we just need to deliver this thing. And when we started trying to, to implement continuous delivery for the first time, I started realizing that all these habits I had were wrong Mm -hmm. and that the only way we're going to get less wrong was just admit that things were wrong and then just iterate rapidly and find out how to become less wrong. And then finally I started realizing that everything we do is probably wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was the epiphany that allowed me to just really accelerate my learning because then I was no longer tied to what I was, I was thinking. I was like, well, what I'm thinking is probably wrong. We're just going to test it and find out. And ultimately, you know, once I got back to where we could deliver very frequently, and you finally got back to getting real customer feedback, you know, in the time frame that mattered, and you started understanding, it's like, oh, look, these requirements were actually the defect. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just that we had bugs, it was just the requirements for the defect. Or they came so long, they were written nine months ago, and now they're no longer relevant, but we're building them anyway. That's a problem that's so elusive, even to engineers. That backlog items, that things that you plan to do some at some point in the future, they have that they, they, they spoil. They have a shelf life. If you write them down when there is market demand, the market demand might disappear by the time you actually decide to do it. Never mind actually deliver it. Or, or, or the worst, the worst thing is where there's market demand for one iteration, but in two iterations to actually act on any kind of feedback is too late. Like, and that's the worst. And that's usually what's happening right now for. Black Friday and for well, any and, kind. Well, and the problem we have, you see all this thing is that once you, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Things like we're going to go to PI planning and we're going to go plan what we're going to deliver for the next three months. Well, I mean, you're supposed to deliver one thing and then get feedback from it to find out if that's really what we want or not. I mean, you're the ultimate When you, when you say one thing, when you say one thing, that, that can quickly be misconstrued no. sort of what does one thing mean and how do we even have this conversation? Well, there's, there's two kinds of one thing. Number one, there's the, <laughs> there's the engineering feedback, right? Okay. I'm going to deliver this change today to find out if it breaks anything. Right. And then there's the business feedback. I'm going to deliver the smallest slice of this next feature to find out mm-hmm. if it's valuable and deliver that and get feedback. But the, figure out if it's safe to merge and whether it's safe to continue with these requirements. Yeah. That's Just because every, it passes all the tests doesn't mean that it doesn't break something in production once it finally gets to a production environment. So okay. I, have a, I, I try to have a high level of confidence, but we're never 100% sure. Yeah. 
And so we want to get feedback as rapidly as possible on the engineering thing. And people tell me there's no value in delivering anything until it's feature complete. No, 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 no. I know it's stable. Yeah. That's very valuable. And then, yeah, and then the other part is I want to make sure we're on the right track. I don't want to invest too much money in this idea. I don't want to assume my idea is correct. I want to assume my idea is incorrect. It's a scientific experiment. I'm trying to invalidate the hypothesis. And we should be ecstatic when it's successful and just accept when it's not. Mm-hmm. And then how do we change course to make it to chase the value? And so just assuming that. I would like to add something to the term of confidence. I think uh, confidence doesn't mean that you are 100%, as you said, 100% safe to deploy. It's about to be confident that you can handle a situation even if something happened, but yeah. you expect that yeah. feedback happened um, at minimum. So what you definitely get is feedback. And if the feedback mm-hmm. is a negative, you can react quickly on that. So mm-hmm. this is confidence. It's not about, oh, I'm 100% sure that nothing will happen. I think this is a big misconception. No, I, I agree. And, and, and the thing that people focus on, they focus on the wrong thing. It's... I want to make sure that everything is perfect before we deliver. And I, that's the wrong thing. Now, I've, you know, I worked in supply chain. Walmart wasn't my first job, but I worked in supply chain at Walmart for a long time. Mm-hmm. 24-7 support. If I push something to production, number one, for a long time, it wasn't going to go for three months. But then when it did go, we were awake a lot at yeah. night. Yeah. But I carried a pager for 20 years. And so operation, and, and for a lot of that time, I was frontline support. So operations is near and dear to my heart. For me, continuous delivery is the ability to repair production very, very fast, right? And what you should be focusing on is how can, number one, how can I ensure that I have the ability to repair any problem quickly, including the last delivery? Because it's not always the last delivery that breaks. It's usually not, typically, honestly. And... With that, I now have the ability to run experiments and deliver very small things. And in fact, I should be delivering very small things all the time to validate my ability to repair production. I can't just assume, oh, I have a pipeline that can fix production. I have to constantly test my pipeline to make sure I can fix production. And and I come from that ops mindset because of just too many sleepless nights. So basically the pager was the reason why you went into continuous delivery. <laughs> no, no, actually it was this is this uh, I just wrote an article for InfoQ about this. And the reason we went to continuous delivery was a business problem. If your lead time is 12 months and you're delivering every quarter, how do you meet business goals in a rapidly changing market, especially when you're when now you have Amazon trying to eat your lunch? And we had this was this was awesome. This is what I call real leadership. We had an SVP come to us, the engineers, and say, "We need to figure. I need you to figure out how you can deliver what we're doing today every two weeks instead of every quarter. And we're talking about a 25 million line, massively entangled monolithic system that's been evolved over the last 25 years. I need that every two weeks. And then he gave us the, the runway to figure it out and the air cover mm-hmm. to accomplish what we needed to do to get it done. He didn't know how to do it. He told us to go figure it out and then supported our decisions. So it was absolutely a business problem. Uh, I'll say that we thought that every two weeks was not aggressive enough. And so we started from day one with, we need to go daily mm-hmm. or it's, it's not CD. Uh, we yeah. actually had a, a project manager assigned to this. He quit 
the project because he said they said every two weeks and we didn't want to do that. We've been doing this software stuff for a while. We don't actually need you. We just took it forward. Yeah. So for those of you who are, I think it's now picking up. We got quite a few. We are we're getting very close to our record of live viewers. No, no, we, <laughs> are, we are already. We are? We are. Especially on uh, YouTube today. I yeah, we have a lot of big, YouTube viewers. It's, uh, it's the largest amount of YouTube viewers we have yeah. had. Because so Ryan, Mike, Saddam, Zahidul, I saw Angel, yeah, Angel, hello, and Camilla, of course, and Jose. Thank you all for joining us. Quick question to chat. How long does it take you on average to verify your requirements? Like when you write them down and you start working on something, how long does it take for you to figure out whether it was the right thing to work on? What does it look like for you in your company? If you could comment on that, if you have any kind of insights on what was said so far, do do let us know. We will respond to chat as much as we can. <laughs> Usually we get swamped. And, and yeah, feel free to, to put some comments, uh, even in YouTube, uh, either in YouTube or uh, yeah, LinkedIn. We, both we will display it and discuss it. Yeah, yeah, we'll display it and discuss it. We we see both of them. Uh, uh, mentioned. Well, yeah, I, want to, I want to cover one thing real quick because Mike Mike Price and the requirements are anti-pattern. We should have something like user stories. Well, let's put it on screen. Um, just give me a moment. I'll, I'll read it out for those of uh, the listeners who are who don't see the screen. So Mike Price is asking, uh, quote. Quote, requirements, unquote, are an anti-pattern in my humble opinion. What we want are something closer to user stories, for example, who, what, why, and acceptance criteria, all from the user's perspective. So this is a very sort of traditional, I would say, Scrum or Certified Agile view. And, and, and I, so there's two points. I don't disagree you should have all those things. Ultimately, you come down with things we need to implement. And to do that, I call them requirements. User stories, if they're done correctly, should lead to requirements that yeah. will be implemented so we can get feedback on the user story. Usually what happens is user stories actually just the requirements yeah. <laughs> that somebody yeah. hands to the team. I like, I like that description because you, because you said ideally user stories lead to requirements. It's, it's how I find it as well. You know, I, usually when I coach teams, I, I tell them, use the go talk to someone and log what you talked about in the user story. And then create requirements out of those, like subtasks. If you're, I mean, if for, you're me, about Nirvana, for me, Nirvana <laughs> is that the acceptance tests yeah. that are next to the user story are the requirements. That we implement those acceptance tests, the tests yeah. pass, we've met the spec. Now we can find out one test at a time if we're like, the spec was actually true or not. I think that requirements change quite often while you have non-functional requirements, which change not so often, and especially your context just change very slowly. And mm -hmm. I think those three things together are determining what you actually want to do. And um, so this is basically how I see it. So requirements, and this is what I see so very often, even this year is, especially when you work with product owners from external companies, you know, working with other companies, requirements can be, let's say, First of all, you understand them entirely different than the product owner did. And yeah. while you're developing already, they change already, which is one of the wrongs we will discuss today. And this yeah. leads to a big problem. So most of the times the qualities don't change that fast, but the mm -hmm. requirements do because the requirements are things you can actually touch. It feels like, you know, it's un in theory understandable for everyone, but everyone understands a different thing. So this is, I think, the reason why it, under uh, why it changes so fast. Well, can I jump ahead to the user's needs change? I just had 
a two-year project end in my house where we had a, a new deck put on. We extended the roof out over the deck. Mm -hmm. And I'm now sitting in a sunroom below the deck. The requirements for the project do not reflect the outcome that we have today. What happened was, as things progressed, we saw potential, and then we started chasing the value of that potential. And we had a, a contractor who believed in single-piece flow. He would only go after one job at a time hmm. and was worked with us on chasing the value that we saw because what was where I'm sitting right now is originally just supposed to be a screened in porch. I couldn't set up here today because it's cold and rainy, but now I have an entirely new living space because we were chasing the value we saw as things were delivered. And so it's the same with software. People don't actually know what they, what they need until you deliver and they go, Oh, no, it wasn't quite that. But there is some humility, Brian, if you don't mind me mentioning this, you said at the very beginning of our show that you're an engineer, but I would say you're you're very soft-spoken, very charismatic, and very entrepreneurial, if you don't mind me sort of labeling you that way, which seems to be a very unusual and sort of unique and very helpful mix for an engineer. Well, I think every software engineer should be a business expert. I mean, this is, they should be, this is something I've had People who claim to be senior engineers say that their job is algorithms and data structures. Yeah, I mean, you're entry level. I'm sorry. I don't care how well you can code your entry level. If we don't understand deeply the business problem we're trying to solve, we're ineffective as software engineers. Mm -hmm. It's like telling somebody that you're a civil engineer because you understand how concrete works, but you don't understand the problem of crossing a river. How do you approach that from a perspective of just cultivating culture? So cultivating culture, <laughs> that's that's a fact. It's correct, actually. <laughs> um, you know, you know, for, if, if I look at it purely from like a pragmatic standpoint, I see a lot of let's say engineering managers wanting to hire engineers. They give them career paths which improve their programming skill and sort of let's say the communication skills. Not so much. Okay, here I'm going to sit you down with the CEO and sort of explain the business for you front to back. Mm. I guess latter scenario is 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 one in ten thousand. I mean, it should be organic to the work. So for, I'll just give an example. The very first team that we that we were trying to figure out how to do continuous delivery for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And this was, we were working on a warehouse management system. And I had been in that problem space for a number of years. In fact, I was teaching the product owners some of the subtleties of warehouse management flow while we were working on you know, a new system, a, you yeah. know, a new application for receiving. But whenever we would, well, I, I, and honestly, to get to where you're able to do continuous delivery, I'm going to back up a little bit. You know, if you need to do continuous delivery, you have to be able to do CI. To do CI, you have to have a high level of certainty of how we're going to test the thing we're coding. Mm -hmm. To do that, we have to have very clear requirements, which mm -hmm. meant that we had to go and learn behavior-driven development the real thing, not, hey, we're coding not in a cucumber. Not, not cucumber syntax, yeah. Right. No, it's where we're, we are working with the business to pull together, okay, how should this actually behave and why, right? And then whenever we were refining our work, just I would educate the people who were new to the problem space on the problem we're actually trying to solve. We'd go on, on distribution center tours, and, I would, and when we were just going through the tour, I'd like point out different terms so they could have a mental model of mm -hmm. the thing that they were programming. 
you know, it's just pushing out. If you don't understand this business problem, we're not going to make those micro decisions mm -hmm. that we need to make. We can't always be staring at the product owner and asking just small questions that we should understand just because we understand the environment we're supposed to be developing mm -hmm. solutions for. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it's just, this is how I grew up as a developer. I've always been in that problem space because I started off with, I was the BA. I was, I was the DBA. Yeah, yeah. It's just how I grew up. What I would, what I, what I hear very often, and there I would have a question to you, Brian, is when when companies complain that they basically want to create a product, but they don't have an internal team, or a team is very far away from that, from them. Yeah. So there is a there's a huge gap, and they basically say, let's say that the. the the IT is not understanding me. The IT is telling, oh, they, they don't know how to explain their requirements. And mm -hmm. as soon as you deliver something, it's somehow wrong. How would you say, what, what, what are the best steps you can do for in such an environment to get that onto an accept, uh, acceptable level, actually? So how would you solve this problem? I mean, I, I think if I can't buy the solution, and I can't afford to hire a development team, that's like the worst possible place that you can be, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've gone through this journey I've been on for a decade now. I've come to understand that what we're trying to solve is supply chain of information. And every time you make that hop, right? Every time you have any kind of handoff, you're degrading that supply chain. You're making yeah. information fidelity lower. And again, that tidbits from, uh, we had a question on this uh, from Ryan, Ryan Savage. What was the book that he held up, Dennis? Uh, it's called Implementing Lean Software Development by Mary and Tom, Tom Opendeck. They yeah. mentioned the research specifically is that every time information is being handed off, so in, I to gather information, I give it to you, I think 75% of that information is lost or something, something in that range. So... This is then a sort of power law distribution on the actual <laughs> the actual person down the line. If this takes about four to five hops, only one to two percent of the actual important information makes it to the person who's actually developing the so software. The, the best idea I have for that, because it's a terrible position to be in, right? Yeah. You can't just say, oh, that sucks and, hiring a engineering team. And not only not only does it suck, but the person who is experiencing the suck is helpless to do something about it because the problem happened way in the beginning of the of the value stream or the production stream. There's two things I would do personally if it was my money. Okay. One is I would hire a senior engineer. And then the other engineers that don't work for my company, I would form them as a team around that senior engineer and make sure the contract was written that way. I would make sure that we were implementing continuous delivery so we can get rapid feedback to the business about whether we're delivering the right things. Mm -hmm. So I'd have that senior engineer next to me, next to the business, who's acting as the tech lead for that team. And then I would form a team around them with whoever we could get. And I'd try to make sure that we had competent people, not just whoever, you know, it's like, you know, consulting company X throws a bunch of juniors at us and says, here you go. Good luck. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're only going to do turnkey development. And, you know, I'd, I'd make sure I had a contract favorable to the business. So what you just described is very vertical. And I know this is a very complex topic where even like even even things like DevOps are like it's a it's a very broadly misused 
I would like here to sort of use the terminology from the book Accelerate. We are reading it right now in the book club. We're, we're meeting mm -hmm. in, a, in an hour and a half. I've had uh, to read it a few times. Yeah, so chapter 16 in, in Accelerate really describes, so there's a bank in the Netherlands and they sort of their their post transformation structure looked something along the lines of they have they have tribes squads and chapters spotify and i think i think it is clumsily attributed to spotify because i don't think spotify uses this no no that's no, spotify i'm sorry the spotify model not what spotify, spotify actually does yes it's called the spotify model <laughs> even even though spotify doesn't use it but my point is that well, the interesting bit that you know that usually shocks engineering managers or that usually shocks non in, like non technical managers or leaders is that the tribes themselves are vertical, right? So most so a squad is something that is a handful of people and is following a value stream, and then a tribe is a team of those teams that will have a tribe leader, but those are all mixed teams. And then what chapters are, chapters capture a specialization in the organization. So mm -hmm. it's all PAs, it's all mm -hmm. engineers, it's all designers, it's all. And what I see when, when we use the terminology siloed companies, we say that the teams match the chapters where engineers are a team, designers are a team, product owners are a team, and then the senior mm -hmm. leadership is a team. Mm -hmm. And then that's sort of completely dysfunctional because there is no talk of product, there's no talk of streams. There's no talk of, of actually autonomous sort of self-steering, self-orienting teams. It's just about, I have this large of a pipeline that makes decisions, and I have a completely different shaped and sized pipeline that executes decisions, and completely differently sized, shaped, and, and sort of steered machine that that gathers requirements and user feedback and then mm -hmm. trying to make that work is a fool's errand like that's that's just not gonna work it's done it's optimizing for hr it's done it's optimizing for hr just exactly. hire a scrum master exactly but, but my <laughs> but my point is a, a lot of a lot of business leaders don't seem to be aware that they don't even have teams so what you you described that you would do naturally you immediately went to shaping a team that is vertical. It's like, we have this problem here. We are probably in this IT area or in this product area, and we need... We need a, a product team. We a need product. a product team. Exactly. We're building a product. We need a product team. You know, and that was the other thing that I talked about in the PQ article was that when we started this, hey, we need a new CD thing, we were organized mm -hmm. into feature teams. So you had long-lived teams, but they were just handed random features to go and implement across this giant system, which meant that every time you touched code, somebody else had changed it, and you had no idea how or why or what they were trying to do. It's just, um, and as part of that, that you know, goal that, that Randy, our SVP, gave us, we said we went off as you know a bunch of the senior engineers who had a lot deep, again, deep business knowledge, um, and went and whiteboarded out what the product subdomain should be for the warehouse management system. Came back to Randy and said, this is our team structure. Here's how they will communicate to each other through interfaces. We need teams to look like this. Mm -hmm. And then we started building teams that looked like that. We built real product teams, including, by the way, a very small platform team to template Jenkins to make it very easy for each one of the teams to stand up new pipelines for the new, the new things we're building to strangle out the old system. 
that sounds like when once you had the topo topology right, you saw you even predicted that there would be a pattern of repeated work, and you sort of. Well, and also we got it wrong. There were some things where you had to tweak some of the subdomains, mm -hmm. right? Have exceptions and, in the actual platform. But well, it's like the subdomain was too big. We needed to split it. That sort of thing, right? And the lesson I learned from that was it's how important it is, even if you're broken down that small, to make sure it's a very modular software. Because you don't want to build group. a general purpose framework as an yeah. output of your platform. Yeah. Yeah. We have a few questions, Brian, if you don't mind us focusing on that. Sure. One of them is from um, Ryan Savage. Uh, had a TPM, uh, so that would be a technical project manager, program manager. Oh. Technical product manager. So yeah. Ryan and I used to be teammates in Walmart Platform. I think. <laughs> so Ryan asks, had a TPM asked me what she could do to start learning to be more technical and learn to code. I suggested her books on continuous delivery and the principles of flow. I said it would help more than learning to code. This distinction of, of flow and continuous delivery versus coding, so the actual programming skill versus the engineering of delivery, where do you stand on this? Like for, for just career growth, let's say for somebody who's like proper senior level. If your goal is, I, th I think the, the learning curve, there's not a lot of good information to jump you from basic hello world to what I need to do for continuous integration that you can mm -hmm. do quickly. I mean, there's, I, I think the learning curve to CI without and trying to learn it on your own is pretty steep. Mm -hmm. Personally, I think that's yeah. something that you really need to experience. It, it it's also hard to do alone, because <laughs> yeah, alone, alone, <laughs> alone you won't have it, it. It requires the problems that only a team experiences. Right, because otherwise, alone it's continuous isolation. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You have nothing, uh, nobody else to integrate, nobody else's work and feedback to integrate with. So it sort of cannot be learned in isolation. Yeah, because you can't experience it in isolation, you can't be self-taught. Um, you can't. You don't feel the problems. It's like dance. It's like it's like couples dancing. Like you, you need to have you need to dance with a partner. You can't just. Yeah, you can't watch a YouTube video and instead you're living your learn how to dance. There's Would you yeah, say problems. you can only learn that by pain? Unfortunately, I think that you only learn it by pain. Or, or like in Ryan's case, Ryan was a when he joined, he came straight out of college, and. We were hardcore CD, so he learned that from the ground up. So he didn't. Mm -hmm. He didn't go. He's going through some of the pain now, but he didn't have the pain back then because <laughs> we were mentoring him. So interesting. I think when we take a look in our past, so we are all a little bit older, let's say, in the times when we deployed via and running automatic hot folder FTP, maybe <laughs> those early stages. That was a form of continuous delivery. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. And, uh, I I've think uh, it's interesting that when I started with my career, we basically were closer to continuous delivery than, yeah, let's say, in the middle part of my career, where Git comes into play everywhere. So we went from SVN to Git. And uh, then everybody was into this Git flow idea and uh, hiding in isolation features and all this kind of stuff. So you actually had great large teams, large teams especially, a lot of large teams working, each of them in isolation, and try to get a common singular aggregated product, which mm -hmm. most of the time failed, you know? And I think, I don't know exactly what I wanted to say by that, but I think it's interesting that we have the shift in the past, let's say two decades ago, we were closer to continuous delivery than most company I work with today. 
So mm -hmm. most companies I work with are still not co doing continuous delivery. We had several polls on LinkedIn about that for, for other streams, I think, uh, three weeks ago, and most don't do continuous delivery. Yeah. yeah, the thing that I experienced, so in the dojo, we got to see, you know, we worked directly with teams. It wasn't like the normal coaching thing where you kind of drive by and say, oh, you should fix this. We were hands-on pairing with teams for six yeah. weeks at a time. And what it comes down to is I've never seen good, so I can't imagine what good looks like. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine what you're telling me will work. And what we're doing right now is working. Well, yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, I can push a car someplace and the car will arrive there, but it's not awesome. I'd much rather drive the car. I mean, it's a better way to get things done. But if all you've ever learned was, oh, I need to just push this car, you know, and you can't imagine anything better. It's fundamentally, that's what it comes down to is just to have it been exposed to what really good looks like. And if you've been doing this for a while or all you've been exposed to is what really good looks like, it's like you just, I talk to people and I sometimes forget their context. Yeah. That they're just living in pain and they don't know any better. And I've not been living in pain. I refuse to go back. And then there's, there's that bridge. Where we just can't. We just talk past each other because of that pain gap. What what I experience often is not only just that you don't like the way you program code, the code base, those technical operational things. Oftentimes, pain is stress within the company. It's it it's death marches with too much tech debt. It's uh, support calls based off of things that, oh, I didn't mean it to work this way, but you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and fix it, even though that's what the requirements said. It's the just the, the uncertainty, the, the stress, the fear of delivery. It's just constant stress and pain. I thought that was normal. And again, this is the reason why I'm so just vocal about this topic is because mm -hmm. if we fix these problems... We don't have to live in pain anymore. It's just a humane, more humane way to work. It's better for the business. It's better for the company's bottom line. It's better for our quality of life. It's better for everyone. Mm -hmm. But people push for behaviors that hurt that goal, which annoys me, which is, you know, you'll see me on LinkedIn sometimes being very aggressive because they're annoying me by pushing things that harm developers, harm businesses, mm -hmm. but it's all that they know. Uh, we put together minimumcd.org as a conference project at DevOps Enterprise Summit a few years ago. Just as a list of problems, solve these problems, and your organization will be a better place to work. Yeah, the, I, I have the, the whole Dora metrics and the accelerate movement is sort of following in similar I, footsteps. I just wanted to continue on what just uh, Brian just said. I, I have that very often as well when I especially see on LinkedIn discussions going on which are totally focused on only operational problems, completely ignoring business problems and mm. the results of that, like a toxic culture, stress, layoffs, all this kind of stuff are people don't have somehow don't view that as their problems. It's, it's only like everyone is trying to see the, the problems within tech, you know, but mm -hmm. we are a team, we are business. So every software developer isn't a business person. You know, I'd, I remember I'd have teams come in and ask me for advice with dealing with, you know, their, their business customer. You know, the business customer says this and business customers manning that. And, and I told them, I was like, look, you're in a bad position technically. Your business customer, I'd, I'd like take my badge off and throw it on the table and say, mm -hmm. Their badge is the same color as my badge. We succeed or fail together. Hmm. So we either bring them together on board and explain to them the challenges and work together or everything's going to fail and they're going to fail. 
And so if they're blaming you for it, you should explain to them that they're part of that failure. Camilla had a comment on this regarding requirements changing. And we also had a follow-up from James. She's going to put it on screen quickly to read it. Camilla says, I do think there is a difference between a set of requirements that have to be expanded, new ideas, etc., and a product owner not really knowing what they want. Uh, because implementing more features or solving a problem in a more effective way is something everyone wants. But as an engineer, not knowing if the feature I'm building today will be tossed out tomorrow due to lack of communication with the PO is super demotivating. Yeah, I think there's there's three kinds of... Uh, I'm only going to say three, there's probably more, but there's, there's three kinds of requirements changing problems. One is what people erroneously call scope creep. There's no such thing as scope creep in product development. There's just the next feature request. That's all it is. The other one is, that's not quite what I needed, not quite what I meant. Either, either I didn't understand what I really needed when it, before it was delivered, or that wasn't quite what I meant. You misunderstood, which is... That's detail. detail-oriented. Well, no, it's, it's just like, you know, it doesn't feel quite right. It would be, mm-hmm. you know, if we tweaked it, it would be slightly better, that sort of thing. And the other one is, we delivered a feature that was a brilliant idea that no one's using. Because they don't need it anymore, or we completely missed the mark on the understanding, but we built it anyway. Yeah, and now we're supporting it and operating it, no one's using it. So on that mark, you know, you mentioned earlier behavior-driven development to sort of, I think, solve this problem, right? So this is a silo problem where the wrong people are putting together the requirements Mm -hmm. in isolation, too far in advance, not getting yeah, yeah. This, this, you've got a PMO generating requirements, throwing it over the wall to a development team and saying, go implement this. And they're not a subject matter expert. And then they're blocking the engineering team from becoming subject matter experts. And then the, nobody really understands the business. The yeah, not only that, but if you have questions, there's a long wait time to get answers. Yeah. There's all sorts of yeah. dysfunction. I saw the stupidest thing ever on LinkedIn today, which was a... SaaS founder and CTO saying that, hey, you know what? You're probably bad at, at writing requirements. So just record a five-minute video and hand it to the team. Like, this is the worst kind of dumb on so many levels. I don't get to answer, ask questions. You don't even have the common courtesy to talk to me. There's there's no back and forth at all. It's just like, hey, do what I say. and, and I'm gonna go Ex- Exactly. This is still an imperative. And the idea of a feedback cycle, and this is important for everyone, is about the cycle. So you do that over and over again so that the developers become aware of what the end users say. A developer should be able to make changes to the requirements while developing in own responsibility. This is somewhat important. And if you mm-hmm. cannot do this, you basically don't have that kind of culture and idea in place and this is i think the real problem especially what camilla just said is that is basically this rigid system of having someone giving you orders half-baked orders you bake them and and you never you never know what happens with those things and you as an engineer are executing their exploratory process like they Mm -hmm. don't know so you need to implement something so that they figure it out Mm -hmm. but you should be the one figuring it out being guided by their sort of prioritization process because they know well, have and it's, more detail. It's shocking, but people need to understand that it's possible that really smart people who are paid to solve problems, once they understand the actual problem in your product vision, might have ideas of how to solve that problem even better. Yeah. That one person coming up with ideas is so much stupider than a group of people mm-hmm. saying, hey, what are some good ideas? It's a great way of putting it. 
that's the very extreme power. Yeah, it's a, and it's not really leveraging, you know, who was it? I think Alex Hermosi was talking about some story from his dad. One of his quotes that his dad used to tell him is like, you have a brain and two hands, use them. Mm -hmm. And the way that most, let's say, dysfunctional product engineering teams or just engineering departments or engineering cultures are set up is that the brain is in one department and the hands are in the other department. And then they need to have meetings to sort of put them in on the same body because yeah. it just completely disconnected. This thinking of should we be doing this happens outside of what the hands are doing. And then you have to have this like weird remote controlled uh, robot simulation. Well, and, you know, the, you know, going back to the idea of the supply chain information and, you know, the question you asked Adrian earlier about the remote team, we had an incident, an issue once where, you know, the, the team I was working on was about 40% contract, but they were staff augment in place in this team area. We had, you know, team areas where we were all, it was open space for that team, right? Mm -hmm. Information radiators, all the stuff that you would need to go really fast. Well, HR came down and said, well, for legal reasons, we can't have them have assigned seating. Because if you have assigned seating, suddenly you have contractors being treated like employees, and then it causes yeah. all sorts of legal nightmares for the US, right? And so they took all of the contract workers and put them in hotel seating away from the team area. Hmm. Our, our ability to deliver immediately collapsed because 40% of our team was somewhere else. They would miss ad hoc meetings. We couldn't find them because it was hotel seating. We didn't know where they sat from day to day to day. And I finally went to our senior director and said, if you want us to actually deliver the way we were delivering, I need those people back because just that distance within the same building where, you know, they were only probably a hundred feet away, but it was still that hundred feet truncated the communication supply chain, created a handoff, created all sorts of disruption. And my senior director went to bat for us and got them back in our area. They just couldn't have assigned seating. So we put them in a hoteling in the center of our team area. Fair. Right. But if you have to fight for the right sort of structure, if you want to deliver well, if you want to you know, fight for your team. The communication flow. So the, the, the problem was communication flow. The communication, communication flow. And, and it was second class citizens. Suddenly they yeah. are less than. Employees and, and employees as contractors and sort of kind of not really employees as not contractors. No, I, I gave a talk in 2017 to the teammate about this experience of what CD, what the outcomes of actually driving towards CD. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, somebody asked me what percentage of our team was contractors. I said, it doesn't matter. I said, you either treat them like employees and treat them like real people or just get rid of them because you can't deliver well. So, Adrian, yeah, no, go, no, go ahead. Would, yeah, yeah. We, we have like 10 comments. Uh, piling up and J and it's mostly James sort of having a conversation with Brian. I would like to catch up with him to give him a chance because he's been, he's been, he's been shielding some really good feedback. So James says, yes, on BDD, the real thing. One of the best practices we developed early on at I am viewed first team startup was a close connection, open communication of our, of, among product engineering and the QA team. Mm -hmm. The outcome was, I think what you describe as the real thing. And, and he has a follow up, which is exactly what you just spoke about, spoke about. Is this idea that more specifically, we had frequent face-to-face -face meetings along with some documentation, enough to ensure a shared understanding 
mm-hmm. of requirements to inform both automated and manual testing efforts. The QA team member was a team leader on our product development teams, along with product and engineering, given that roles reality with actual customer usage of the product. This mm-hmm. is, I think, Brian, what you mentioned as being the number two in your yeah. three realms. So we'll miss yeah, we'll yeah. during development. Yeah, and this is this is exactly what we did. We when we started on this journey, every team had an offshore testing team. It was just test automators. Mm-hmm. That was a complete nightmare when you try to get a CD because their tests were always trailing. So I worked with the QE department to get a QE lead as and she wasn't QE being on quality, quality engineer. They called it quality yeah. engineer. Yeah. Okay. QA, yeah. To get a QE lead. As she wasn't full time, but she was at every single one of our meetings when we were uh, going through refining with BDD and working with her to as a liaison because we were changing the paradigm about how testing was done. Yeah. And you know, I, I finally, finally got them to remove that testing team from our team because all they were doing was creating really poor tests that weren't doing anything to help us and. I mean, we had to start from zero. We didn't know how to test when we started. But I mean, a year later, we were testing way better than they were, you know, oh. to the point where we could go to production multiple times a day with high levels of confidence. But who who is the first QA person? Is it the developer or someone else in the team? So when it comes to uh, making sure that the quality is actually met? I, I mean, ultimately, it's the, it, the quality starts at defining how we're going to test it before we start coding. You know, something I, I say repeatedly is if we don't know how to test it, we shouldn't start coding it. Yeah. We define how we're going to test it. The, uh, if you go to dojoconsortium.com, I mean, .org, there's a whole bunch of playbooks out there that I got open source before I left Walmart platform from the Walmart Dojo. And one of the things we talk about there is code review. And if you're doing code review, what you should be looking for is are we testing it the way we said we were going to test it when we def- when we refined the story? And is it readable, right? <laughs> like variable names make sense, you know, is it clean, is it modular, you know, is it simple? But focus on the tests. And so whose responsibility is it? It's the team's responsibility to identify. And the team is all the developers, your your testing lead, the, the person who enables people to test better, not the person who does testing. QA should not test. They should enable people to test better, right? And the product owner, all working together, that's the team. They're responsible for the tests. Implementation is done by the developer. And the pipeline is responsible for validating that the tests ran. But that's that's quickly getting you into trouble. Because in, in a, a lot of teams that I'm coaching, QA is usually a human, an HR problem to writing tests, not to make the tests easier to make and to easier to run, yeah. but to 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 cover for this lack of automation that the QA engineer is then the person who is essentially doing heroics just before deployment. And they're and they're actually making it worse as they go. And they're making it worse yeah. because they're blocking they're blocking feedback because. If I had high confidence that it, it it is benign, I could just push it out to production and get feedback. But instead, there's now this this labor going on mm. during the deployment cycle. Yeah, so every time we would work with the team of the dojo, number one, we're with you for six weeks, and you'd be doing two sprints a week. So every two and a half days, we're delivering. Mm-hmm. 
and in, in early on during a retro about why what broke that prevented us from delivering. So that's yeah. that's item number one. When we go into a team and they would have a test automator, usually using Cucumber <laughs> to write into end tests, but they'd have a test automator. The first thing we do is like, hey, look, you're no longer the test automator. You, and whether it was true or not, whether they were trained in it or not, we just granted them um, respect, right? It's like, you are the quality expert. You need to help the developers learn how to test because they are now going to be doing CI, which means they can't push untested code. Just flat up stop. You can, you're no longer allowed to push code that's not tested. They're not good at it yet, which means that you're going to have to help them. We're going to help everybody, but that's your job to make sure they are testing correct. And how that's just you, how we would do it. We just say, that's, that's it. You're done. Of course we were internal. We weren't contractors, right? We weren't consultants brought in. We were internal, so we had street cred inside the organization. Mm -hmm. So people were just like, oh, okay. How do you approach the sort of litmus test? Let's say you, you are a consultant and you get brought in. What is, you, you mentioned earlier, in order to do CD, you need to do CI, in order to do CI, you need to do something along the lines of trunk-based development. You need, you need very, well, for so, CI, yeah, you need, you need very small testable acceptance criteria. Yeah. Where do you, in a dysfunctional organization that releases very slowly and chaotically, this can quickly become a chase down rabbit hole. How do you quickly triage, let's say, triage, if this is gonna be a huge cultural shift, how do you how do you approach breaking the problem itself up into smaller units of change? Oh, that's that's number one. Is is the is their leader does leadership want the team fixed or their teams fixed? Or is the leadership wanting actual change and improvement and willing to give air cover? So the very first thing I do is interview the highest level of air cover that the team can have. And when right? you say so, that is that is that painting the idea of wanting it be fixed a negative connotation that i yeah. do I understand that correctly yeah. so it's like do we want to change or are we like yeah. judging them and they need to sort of figure yeah their the team is out. delivering the best they can possibly deliver in the system they're delivering the system around them is broken okay they may also lack some skills but then they don't need those skills because the system around them is broken mm -hmm. honestly the skills are relatively easy to fix um but you're going to get very limited improvement if you don't have, I mean, you'll, you'll get something close to CI maybe if you don't have leadership support, active support, not even just permission, active support that, yes, I want everything to be awesome and I respect my engineers. I'm going to give them the support they need. If you don't have that, just don't start. Rule one of our regulars has a comment on this from, from earlier. He said, usually most of the pain comes from top-down decision-making where we have bosses narrow-minded and unwilling to listen. Yes, the same with the videos you just mentioned before. Had, uh, don't make imperative videos and orders and, you know, yeah. things and top it's not, down. It's not a feedback loop. It's just going one way. Like, you can't mm -hmm. fix the problem if you can't get feedback, right? If, if, if no feedback well, is being got. I think I left a comment yesterday on a similar conversation where I said, if, if you work for someone who doesn't want to listen to you and you know it's a better way of working, go find a smarter place to work. I mean, how much pain are you willing to tolerate? It, it, it will be, if you're just an engineer, it will be damaging to your career because you'll be yeah. learning bad habits and you'll be reinforcing them and you'll reinforce your environment and your peers to follow them. You won't learn as you could be learning. You know, it's like when you never get feedback, you're, all, you're just a 
let's say a robot you're just doing stuff as someone else supposes it to do for you actually so you don't you, you don't make decisions what you should do as a developer you know you develop which is an active process it's not like you are not an automation unit you know it's not like this and um, i mean ultimately you're all as an as software engineer you're only as smart as the problems you've been allowed to solve right i've been very fortunate about number one the problems that i've had presented to me and the leadership I've had when I had those problems. I've been given really hard problems to solve with really crappy leadership and the outcomes were poor. You really need both of those things. And if you work in an organization where you have boring problems or bad leadership, either one of those things I think is a deal killer if you want to be, if you want to really take this career seriously. Yeah, we have this often now on LinkedIn as well with the will AI substitute software developers. And I think this this is aligned to this topic very, very close, actually, because mm -hmm. if you have the feeling that you can be substituted by such a average thing like ChatGPT, then you are actually not really a developer. You don't make decisions. You don't think too much. You don't plan ahead. You don't process feedback. You don't make decisions at all. You just do. And then, yeah, maybe you can substitute on some point against some, some form of low-code thing in the future. But if you do decisions, if you take... If you be an active developer, active in shaping the outcome of the company, then you cannot be substituted by any form of AI in the near future. This is my opinion about that. No, I, I agree. I, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of experiments with ChatGPT from multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. From a development point of view, it's right now a junior developer that sometimes hallucinates dependencies, but there's potential there. What I see it as a potential is a fifth generation language. Mm -hmm. It's just the next layer of abstraction up. So you yeah. don't have to go and code in conditionals. You can just tell it how, what the condition should do. Mm -hmm. But you still have to have the brain power to tell it what to do. Exactly. Right? It, and it's and funny. that comes down to getting down to how do I test it? But it's so funny because... I was going to say that the, the people who win in the AI development point of view are the people who can do behavior-driven development and understand how they can test. This whole core notion about behavior-driven de development is often being misunderstood. Yeah. It's often being misunderstood the same way that you explained earlier that QA is being misunderstood. Yeah. The QE might be being misunderstood. And that it is not cohesive. It's, it, it doesn't teach the developers how to test themselves. It just silos that knowledge and infantilizing them, sort of preventing them from learning it. It's a typing pool, that. right? Yeah. It's a typing pool. Yeah, exactly. And the whole idea, I, I, I went on a binge on Alan Kay videos recently because that was exactly the problem we tried to solve with object-oriented sort of paradigm. That was solving the same problem. It's like mm -hmm. if, if you're looking at it purely from like a typing problem, writing an if statement in assembly code might be four lines of code. In C, it's one or two, depending on where you put the curly braces. But it's, it's, the, it's this idea that <laughs> I'm, I'm taking this concept that takes for a human five lines to read and reason about. And in this language, which compiles one-to-one, -one, it is one line of code. And, and that was abstraction. That was That is the first generation or first to second generation language mm -hmm. that abstracts away this idea mm -hmm. that there's something a machine does that I know how to express as a single sentence, as a single statement. Right? So, And then we went further from that. It's like, okay, well, there are now these ideas around these statements, which I can introduce as a I can express as an object, or I can express it as a message, 
So it, it is no longer the statement itself, but it might be carrying behavior. It might be carrying stateful behavior. It might be carrying stateless behavior. It might be encapsulating something very important, separating out some kind of cell-like behavior of this is outside, this is inside. But still, it is being expressed as this single statement idea. And then AI is then that, that extra notion of when I say this prompt, when I use this prompt, I actually meant all that that you'll be sort of outputting for me. Now, mm -hmm. the problem for me is that it's, you know, using AI right now, it's as if I'm writing C and then compile it. And then I take that assembly code that it's generated and then I put it into my source code. Like that's the problem that I'm seeing with, with LLMs being used for coding. It's like, well, if I'm- Yeah, but we're, we're still, AI, we're still in the early generate. days, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. if you, it's like, some of my coworkers have done comparisons between like Copilot and ChatGPT and ChatGPT will give them better results in Copilot just because it's a, I guess- a, a It's about context. Model. Like it will have I, less I or more. Yeah, so, but I mean, we can deep dive into this. You know, ultimately it doesn't replace real software engineering, right? Yeah. It does replace a lot of menial stuff, right? I'm not afraid of being replaced by a, a, a large language model. I'm just not. To your point, if you are afraid, afraid of being replaced by a large language model, find more interesting problems. <laughs> yeah. So I still, I still were a fan of the term engineer. So basically the term in, in Germany, we never used this term, to be honest, mm. not really. So we always use the translation for software developer. And I still mm -hmm. like it more because it reflects or describes more the actually, the actual doing of creating mm -hmm. software. You could do this without any programming language and you're still a software developer, but um, the engineering part or the programmer or the coder is, is for me too much operational. Yes, it's important for us if we do coding and if we do those you no know, hands-on stuff, but- No, I, 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 see, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm gonna strongly disagree. Um, okay. And because for me, an engineer is the person who's, it should be done this way, right? If, you know, if, if I'm engineering a bridge, I'm not pouring concrete and laying rebar. I'm saying we need to engineer it this way for these conditions across this river, across this span, for these weather conditions. I mean, and you have all these these trade-offs you're making, right? I mean, that's what real engineering is. And and I focus on calling it engineering also because I want us to be held to a higher standard than we are. Today. There are there is rigor in real engineering that is lacking in software engineering, even though software engineering is overtaking engineering in importance a lot the the barrier to entry because the tools have gotten so easy the barrier to entry into software development is very very low so is the rigor we we need more rigor in our industry and we need to be held to higher professional standards than we are and that's why i use engineer on the, on the topic of professional standards we have a very good sort of more human 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 management oriented question here from mm -hmm. Sophia. Sophia, hello. A new face on the stream. Agree on everything. Unfortunately, I've also seen some developers taking advantage of quote agile, unquote, to do less and still we, the rest of the team, have much more work to do. Without individual performance checks, how can we overcome this? Well, so number one, software is not developed by individuals unless it's something like Lodash, mm -hmm. where it's mm -hmm. one guy who created this project he likes. It's developed by teams. And I, I've studied this individual metrics problem for a long time. I talked to 
Chairman King, CTO of Walmart, and had this conversation with him. He's like, yeah, we tried all sorts of things, eBay and all sorts of things, other places. We never found anything that was couldn't be gained. But there's no valid individual metrics you can use for a software development team. There's just not, I'm sorry. You know, what you do do though, is you give the team hard challenges. You make them, number one, you give them a business problem. You make them own the business problem. You give them ownership of how they deliver that the solutions to that problem. And you give them responsibility and accountability to the outcomes of their decisions, right? Yeah. I'm not going to make really stupid decisions like, you know what? I want to learn Python. Let's write another in Python so that we have five languages in our stack. You're not going to make stupid decisions like that if you also have operational responsibility for what you build. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, and so you're, you're answerable to the business. You uh, are answerable to your, answerable to your engineering decisions. And then you, you look for very short feedback loops. You can't, you know, I mean, I, we shouldn't be putting teams on death marches, but there are people who will slack off. There are. So we have goals. We have real business goals we're trying to accomplish. And we can see if we're accomplishing those or not. You can measure our ability to achieve business goals as a team. And if we're not, why not? Is the, are the tools crappy? You know, the, we, we start number one with just, it's too hard to deliver. Where's the friction in the system? The last problem is probably going to be slackers. There are slackers in organizations. I'm not Pollyanna about this, but most people aren't. Yeah. It could be they're just demotivated by the sucky system they're delivering, right? Or like I said, it could just be that it takes, you know, half a day to get a support ticket answered because my laptop's acting up, right? Yeah. For so a week. What I what I what I want to add to this one is um, that the worst outcomes I ever saw every time. So when we created software, software others, software for ourselves, it doesn't matter. When you have this idea of let's say isolation or you know single persons, you have those people who want to program in their tunnel. They don't want to integrate in the team. They don't want to know about the outcome. And when you have this level of indifference in your team you are basically doomed to fail in some way or the other or entirely. So well, there is basically, there's basically no way to run a successful product when more than half of the team feels indifference while developing. Well, and, and CI is a good counter to this. So the, the cultural impact, you know, so this is the, go, if you go look at the DevOps Enterprise Summit's 27, uh, YouTube channel from the 2017 talk, it's continuous delivery, solving the talent problem at Walmart. Okay. And the drop, well, the, just before the mic drop, the mic drop was really, if you send the team down the path of continuous delivery and then, and then get cold feet, they're going to keep pushing for it, but maybe not for you. But just before that was the, the comment that it made us love development again, because it took such a high level of collaboration to do real continuous integration. And we were hardcore about it. Today's code goes to the trunk today. No ifs, ands, or buts. At least once a day, we're good. trunks codes go in the trunk today. And the definition of ready for a user story was that we can accomplish this in two days or less. Either as a group or individually. Yeah, the, yeah. This, this story, either as a team or individually, depending on the size of the story, can be accomplished in two days or less. And we mm-hmm. knew that because we're breaking things down to the level of detail where we could say, 
this will take us two days or less. And a level of detail to about uncertainty, right? So we had this you know, virtuous cycle of very small, short feedback loops gave us high levels of certainty and gave us a lot of teamwork required to get it done. People couldn't just sit on something for two weeks and not do anything. It's a great question by Sophia. I and mean, she also has a little mini challenge here for you, Brian. Yeah. So you're saying that it might be okay-ish? I mean, some slackers are on sometimes. Some no, 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 no. The team knows who the slackers are. The team, if they're if the team's trying to achieve goals and there's people holding them back, they will start grumbling about it, right? Mm -hmm. and this is this is a, you know the, the thing that at Walmart we call coaching by walking around. A good leader will know what's going yep. on with their teams. Exactly. They don't need metrics. The right. problem. The problem starts. I I I see this all the time, and I'm I often encouraging this because I'm I'm usually working with the team and their immediate leader. So or just a, a leader that then has second line managers. But it's usually a person, a singular person with their reports. And I see this a lot where they might accidentally have this. They are coming from a benevolent space on of wanting to treat everybody equally. But they are but they are doing so from a place where the rules were not clearly communicated. So they are treating the slackers equally as the well-performing members of the team, because maybe they they might be at some kind of mac, um, uh, how would you call it, learning maximum, or like the, their their ability to just sit down and fix inter problems is at a capacity. So they, 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 there is no wiggle room. They didn't leave themselves wiggle room to address the differences in attitudes between those who you might call slackers and those who whom you might call high performers and yeah, then when the is... high performers see that they're being treated the same way as the slackers they start slacking off as a second generation problem of seeing yeah. the sort of neglect to their aptitude now this is this is why i i disagree strongly with the idea of oh we're just going to have a self-forming team and we're going to bring everybody together and then everybody's going to just work together in harmony and kubaya you need a tech lead and the tech lead should be a technical leader they should be a developer on the team mm -hmm. they should be focusing on how do i solve how do i clear technical impediments for the team how do i be looking out for new problems and how do i make sure that everybody's growing technically on the team Right. They're not the HR person, right? But they're the tech lead. And they're also the person who says, okay, look, I see you're struggling here. How can I help? Okay. Now I'll tell you that on, on a team I worked on once as as the tech lead, had somebody on the team who was relatively junior and he was he was struggling. He was always a little slower than even the other junior developers. But you know, my job as a tech lead is to help grow other engineers. Right? Ultimately, though. He went on site and it was an internal customer, but still our customer and was behaving in ways that showed he just didn't care. And then I found out about this from one of my other teammates who's out there. And then, so I started kind of digging in more into his get log. Only discover he hadn't committed code in a month. He'd just been, you know, because we'd been giving him something that was like, he was in relatively new to our team. He'd come from another team anyway. All that to be said, when I started digging in and, and looking at the information that's being given to me about things, I rejected his access to Git and told his manager he was fired from the team. I was like, we've done everything we can, but he's dragging us down, causing morale problems on the team. I can't have that. 
And his manager told me I wasn't allowed to fire him because I didn't have any yeah. authority. So I had exactly could, the same situation. I told him, I said, you, he could sit there all he wants, but he doesn't have access to get anymore. And we're going to go forward and we're not going to give him any work. So yeah. you enjoy. I, we, had the, we had this issue once where, in one of our companies where we grew very rapidly. And as we split in teams, we didn't, we didn't write down any kind of, let's say, cultural agreements on what the bar should be for hiring somebody for a senior position. So what happened is that then two different recruiting, two different engineering managers in our team. So I was I was a tech lead on one team and there was another tech lead. And we sort of disagreed on what the bar should be. And they hired somebody that was below the bar. They said, this is a senior, trust me. And then their team disbanded and we absorbed their all of their engineers into sort of then we split and then reintegrated with them right so it's like we had a team they had a team and sort of we merged and then we split along the along the scene where the new pairs would form naturally around new products and what happened is that we then determined that we now have two different types of senior engineering teams one that was vetted on a let's say more rigorous process and one that was vetted on a more sort of work to mouth kind of well we if they take you know, it's my responsibility to make sure they're a senior. If they're not senior, then I'm not doing my best, you know, giving them giving them yeah. nurture. But as Anjana yeah. points out, Anjana is one of our regulars in the stream as well, is that, yes, you might have high performers and slackers, but a slacker also needs to be interested in learning. Like you, you can't, you know, you can't force them to learn. No, there needs to be, it, it needs to be. This is not a jobs program, right? Yeah. If they're not interested in learning, they need to go somewhere else. I can't, you know, this is the thing is that to build a high performing team requires having a whole bunch of people who want to get things done. Right? And I don't want to get, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I wasn't like a dictator in the team. I was absolutely, I, I found that early on, if you want to do CD, you have to be a servant leader. You have to listen to the team and help push, you know, help them clear problems. Right. And this was becoming a problem. And I, you know, so this is just like, okay, guys, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll take care of it. You can't let a bad apple just destroy a team. You, you need to fix it immediately. I had a high performer on the team who was disdainful of everybody's work. Mm -hmm. He was not collaborative. He was always gold plating, holding on to stuff instead of hand, you know, doing CI with the rest of the team. Isolation, long list, yeah. branches. But he was a he was a hotshot developer. It's still dragging the team down. But it was heroics, and it was right. creating... It wasn't even heroics. It was just like, I'm better than you, right? He was better than most of the team, technically, but it didn't matter because he harmed the team. Mm -hmm. The team overall didn't deliver as well with him on the team. Actually, this is basically a topic of its own, somewhat important to talk about this. Maybe we should talk about this special topic one mm -hmm. more time in the future because this is a real... So when I look back into the past, most problems I saw personally were coming from exactly those things. So delayed projects, too many mistakes, people, you know, missing teamwork. So many problems are rooted to exactly this. Missing transformations or failing transformations into a new type of engineering culture or methodology or practice like C, uh, like like CD, for example, that often fails or TDD. Yeah, it often fails because some do things, others don't, and you don't have, let's say, you don't have a common idea implemented. You don't have an mm -hmm. example implemented. You don't have leaders. For example, uh, I, I'm in, in, in several Slack groups, and people are often like, especially in scaling startups, you have that, that engineering leads ask, how can we measure our teams? Why? Because 
they try to with with measurements with metrics they try to fix exactly this problem it's it's not they 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 basically miss let's say team leads good team leads who keep the teams together to you know push them into the right direction into the common alignment of the business instead they try to do this with measurements with individual metrics and all this kind of stuff oh yeah i would have been fired off that i would have been team if they measured me on development metrics we have a question on this by the way i just checked doing my due diligence we have a question that didn't show up on streamyard and it's exactly about this topic i would have to read it out loud if you don't mind so yuvraj is asking Software engineers will often treat any productivity metric as a problem to solve. Gaming it is sometimes just a path of least resistance, and sometimes it's the challenge of breaking a rule without being caught. Yeah, I don't, I don't even think it's a... I agree that they will treat that as a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think in most cases, they're not trying to be bad actors. They're just trying to meet the expectation. You have to be very careful about setting incentives because people will, will align to the incentives. Yeah. Right? Again, most people are not bad actors. They're just not. The outcomes you get are caused by the people creating the incentives. Going back to the three wrongs, right? I mean, those are three really good reasons to do continuous delivery. But the problems we're talking about right now about lack of teamwork, people hanging on to things, all of this dysfunction that slows down delivery and causes harm, CI helps fix that. You can't, it's uh, the, the, the act of implementing continuous delivery is like lifting up the rug and shining a light and all the things have been swept under the rug. You can't hide dysfunction and do CD. You just mm-hmm. can't, right? And so if you're pushing towards continuous delivery, what's going to filter out is um, high-performing teams. Brian, and since you're- High morale since teams. Since we're talking about high-performing and high-morale teams, I, I, yeah. you had a very good, and maybe this is interesting to me because I like <laughs> spreadsheets like this, but you had a very good, like this table on your actual blog post. This is from your original blog post that we linked earlier. Yeah. Is the high-performing team the one at the top? Like, do these columns here match the three rungs? Is that? Well, I mean, the, the goal of this is just to explain like complexity, right? Your odds yeah. of being correct or like one over uh, let's say what is it you know one over two to the race to the nth number of people involved right so mm-hmm. we have everybody has to be right and everybody has it, to be on time for the entire thing to be functional so we have three silos here right you've got the the the, the pmo you've got the development team and the testing team mm-hmm. well they all are going to have different mental models of what correct is. And this is not an assertion, by the way. I've measured this on multiple value streams when I was interacting with teams. You know, every time I saw an external testing team, instead of testing behavior within the team, there was this triage loop. You'd have the testing team writing their test with the same requirements from the, from the, the, the development team was writing code with, and then the test would fail. Mm-hmm. And you want to know the percentage of the time the test was correct in failing? It was like forty percent of the time, mm-hmm. right? And then you'd go back to a tree, go back to a meeting that would take two or three hours to go and try to dig through the failures and identify who was incorrect, yeah. and then go back to the product owner and find out both of them were incorrect. Of course, then you ship and find out that all three of them were incorrect, right? I mean, so that just that handoff and delay of having those silos so impactful. I often discuss this regarding you know when one of the deliverables is a plan itself when stakeholders are sort of trying to play this game of let's get the estimates right. And then, you know, 
at, at the point where the estimates are wrong because we're late, then they try to have a second generation game of the same game where they say, okay, if we're wrong, how far, how far along our original estimate are we right now? So they are playing like this, the second generation estimation game of, okay, if the estimation was off, but I think the plan was good, what do you estimate the current progress is? And yeah, that's like the dumb of, of, of Scrum Masters or somebody yeah. changing story points to make the burn down chart look good at the end of the sprint. I mean, yeah. so how, how do you, what's the root cause here? How many steps back do we need to go to, to, to come to a, a person that has accidentally created such a system? Well, I mean, this goes back to you need a cross-functional product team. If you're delivering product, you but need cross-functional product. We we our streams let's say are have a little bit of a, like an SMB startup focus. If I'm sort of if if I'm sort of looking at a timeline of a startup, like let's say two three years, yeah, I'm rolling it backwards. Yeah, did, did the CEO set up this culture? Did the CTO set up this culture? Like, is no, this, you, is you start with you start with day one. What this is the culture we want. So yes. I'm I'm I belong to a startup now. I was I think there was eight of us when I when we started. I started on day one, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And we started with we we actually hire for culture. If you if you go to a job interview with Defense Unicorns, your first interview is going to be a culture interview. Are you a good cultural fit for our culture? Yeah. And if mm -hmm. if not, you know, hey, you might be for somebody else, right? I was talking to another CEO recently who has a, a startup that. Kitbeck actually works for it's kind of cool. They hire specifically for do you know how to do a, a, a test driven development? You know, do yeah. you know how to do CI? I mean, it's they very they controversial on, they, on LinkedIn, especially people get super upset about it. It's like, don't worry, people don't. My, my opinion on, on it is I wish I was better at it. I'm always faster when I do it, right? I didn't learn to do it from day one, so it's something that right. I, I, I practice, right? But I'm always, I, I will generally, uh, if I don't do it, mm -hmm. I'll come back and go, God damn it, I wish I'd been doing TDD because this would have been, a, now I'm going to go and do all yeah. this rework because I didn't. Yeah. That's my opinion on it, right? Anyway, they hire for their culture. This is because you start the way you want to end. This is just like the conversations that you guys were having yesterday, you know, it about putting together pipeline and pipeline. And I said, pipelines feature zero. Yeah. I, I was given a talk one time at a company and about platform as a product, but somebody asked me about when's the right time to create a CD pipeline. I'm like, when's the last or when's the right time to add linting to a JavaScript project? Your pipeline is just like the validation that everything's good. And your, your application will be shaped by the pipeline, it is the constraints that shapes your application. And if you try to bolt it on later, it's just all it's going to do is say, look at all this tech debt that we didn't know about. And you also create this intergenerational problem of there was something created pre-pipeline and something was created post-pipeline and not yeah, like yeah. this disconnect. But it's the same with an organization. If you're not intentional about your culture from day one, you can't bolt it on later. This is what I often, um, you know, refer to um, hidden strategic decisions. When you think you don't need to implement this in first place, may it be the culture, may it be, let's say, the right foundation, may it be the right 
destination. You all, people, I, and I, I hear this especially in startups. They say you can always fix later, right? You can I, always I improve just, later. Uh, it, I, 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 hate I physically this. I hate recoil from, oh, we're a startup, we don't need a pipeline. I, I, <laughs> hate, like, ah. this. I hate this when people saying this because they yeah. don't know what it means to actually, yeah. you know, get, get things reverted later on. It is so hard. No, I mean, so like, like defense unicorns, know? I mean, the, the engineers at defense unicorns are intensely focused on, are we testing this correctly? Do we have a, a reliable pipeline to deliver this well? Yeah. You know, we've only been around for two years. We're pretty mature about that stuff. And we mm -hmm. were pretty mature about that stuff on day one, yeah. right? It's so important. And you're describing, you're describing, so yesterday with Tobias as well, you know, uh, he mentioned the comment here, teams need to have difficult conversations and bring up those conflicts and discuss them. Yeah. Not talking about the elephant in the room will lead to degraded trust and performance for practical advice, how to have those conversations. I like the book, yeah. Agile yeah. Conversations. I totally agree. He's, he's, he's spot on. A team is, you spend, you know, more time with your team than you do with your family and a lot of times. And if you, you can't allow toxicity to rot the team. Mm -hmm. It makes you, your personally, your daily work terrible. It, it just, if you can't find another job, it just sucks the joy out of your life. I, you know, we do the, the work itself is so hard. We should at least have fun with our team while we do it. We should like each other. We should appreciate each other, respect each other. Happy to see each other every day, right? Yeah. You know, a reason to come on and fight those problems, because as you said, you don't know what happens. You don't know what happens with your users, with the system, some circumstances, yeah. and you at least, at least, you know, come along or get along with the people you work with. It's so, it is somewhat important because this, you know, over time you have those ups and downs. And mm -hmm. a good team will, you know, will push you up again when you are personally down again, you know. And this is very important for the business as well. You need to it run is. your your teams on some point, like like having this this implemented culture in a way where, yeah, there's supportive culture actually, you know, yeah. that 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 people when when they see oh something is not going well for you, they come and help you. And this is the mm -hmm. same with code with documentation with you know working like oh it must you know it must be a good fit for my for my colleagues for example so when i write something when i write a test when i plan some work i have in mind how can i do that for others that they are yeah. happy with that that this is a, a good thing for them to learn for them to improve how can i make the life easier for my colleagues yeah, and this, this yeah. is a mature way of working if you are not doing this you are actually not a team player. You are not part of the team. You are just there by contract. Mm -hmm. This is an, an important differentiation. I made my so this is what I actually learned the hard way. And well, and I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna take that up a level because this you know, platform engineering is the thing I'm very passionate about. For that exact reason, how can I build platforms to make my coworkers' jobs easier, easier. and remove mm -hmm. friction? So many platform teams act like police or they just don't care mm -hmm. about their their customers their colleagues but i talked to a, a developer at exxon mobil uh, several years ago and he was uh, in, in platforming so you know I've, I've discovered that it seems like all the top developers wind up in platforms so they can be closer to the customers right you have to you know so i'm just going to throw that out there if you're doing platform engineering and you're not intensely focused on making somebody else's job easier rather than your own quit Good advice. Thank you, Tobias. And thank you, Brian and Adrian, on this 
on this topic because James is sort of course correcting us a little bit here. So I think the four key metrics are a good set of metrics to reflect the overall performance capability. Because we just spoke about, you know, how do we make work suck less or how do we make at least work be more enjoyable for others? Yep. And it, I think it ties in well to the performance. I, I, I would I would I would quickly say something about that. I, I know that not everyone is I, I heard that quite often, but for me the metrics are like a speedometer. And if your car is not driving, you don't need a speedometer. It is like you know, it is like how can you tweak things? Mm -hmm. Metrics are about tweaking. It is it is a further step. First thing, what most teams fail, what I see, is to lay the foundation, the groundwork. Yeah. And you can't yeah. use metrics to build a groundwork. It has to be this the biggest problem. So like, in the 2021 IT Revolution Spring Journal, you can find uh, an article I wrote called How to Misuse and Abuse Dora Metrics. I, I'm going to disagree with you here slightly, James. I think they're really good metrics to indicate that there's a problem. They're not a good way to indicate that there's that things are going well, and they don't tell you anything about what to fix. But they are, and 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 the the car example I would use isn't a speedometer; it's a you know a check engine light is <laughs> the example I would use. Right, something's broken. Something's broken, um, and the human needs to assess whether you need to fix. Not only that, but something's broken contextually to this particular team, because you know every team is delivering to a different context with a different yeah. set of constraints, ultimately. Right. So they're, it's, they're good for that. There's many other metrics I would use to identify what's what's broken, right? And there's other metrics I would use to dis discover if things are going well, but those are business value metrics. I mean, that's, you know, th those aren't related to engineering as so much as outcome. Steve mentions it that this as well, you know, I mean, Raul mentions it, but on the pipeline is like <laughs> telling clothes naked. <laughs> it's a good analogy. <laughs> Thank you, Raul. Thanks for being with us. Steve mentions also a fresh face. You can't bolt culture on later, 100%. If you think you can add culture, you have underestimated the work involved in sustaining. Culture has to be intentional. You know, this is something I learned, it got drilled into your head at Walmart. If you've been at Walmart for any length of time, you're going to live the Walmart culture. It's taught to you during orientation. It's drilled. It's, it's printed up on the walls. It's taken very seriously. I had to change the way I talked when I joined Walmart because of the culture. I couldn't cuss anymore. Right, <laughs> you know, people take things like respect for the individual so seriously that a VP can get fired for screaming at like individual contributor. Right, so you have to be intentional about the culture if you want to maintain it. You can't just say, "Oh, this is our culture," and then not live it. Just text on the wall. I, I, I would, I would even say that you can compare the culture of your company or team with if you have a garden, for example. If you don't, you know put ongoing work into that, will basically, you know, it will, I don't know, it will basically not be as intended. So it will maybe die. You know, in some cases, you will have problems here and there. Some mm -hmm. things may stay up, something may go down. Mm -hmm. And you need to take ongoing, you know, attention, you know, every day, you need to walk through your garden, mm -hmm. you know, and be there. It is not, you can't do that remotely, you know. It's like you need to be in there, take a look and feel how it's going on. This is basically the same with humans, you know. Um, you need to be, be let's say, uh, between them. And yeah. uh, this, this is an interesting point, uh, what just uh, what Sevilla just said. Uh, Would you mind reading you it all? 
Yeah, of course. A very interesting discussion on culture. Uh, what if you are on place that uh, doesn't have a engineering culture? Is there a mm -hmm. way to uh, start creating and spreading it? Uh, which steps do you advise to build it? Support from top management. I would pass the word um, to 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 um, to Brian. Just wanted to say that you always have a culture in place. It is yeah. just do you have a good culture or a bad culture? That's true. You, you, you do have a culture. That's for sure. Yeah. No, but this one actually is near and dear to my heart, this particular question, because we had a business culture when I joined Walmart, you know, that we had the, the first, C, the first uh, CIO said that, you know, everyone's a merchant. Everyone in IT is a merchant. And we didn't really have an engineering culture. When I joined the platform area, it was the very first time we were trying to centralize delivery platforms. So it wasn't just uh, the nice way to say it's federated. I think federated is a little more structured than what we have. But we were trying to centralize the platform, but the goal of centralizing the platform was to build a platform that encouraged continuous delivery for two reasons. One, to improve our ability to deliver business value, but also to improve our engineering culture. It, but the platform's not enough, right? There's other things that we did. You know, we we created special interest groups around continuous delivery, around testing, around you know different things to bring interested engineers together, and also to bring in other people who are being exposed to these things for the first time to grow that engineering culture. We created the dojo to work hand in hand with teams, but also to be advocates for this for continuous delivery and this culture of engineering. You know, we did lunch and learns, all sorts of things. DevOps days, you know, focused on how do we deliver business value better, put challenging problems. You know, when the when Randy gave us this really hard problem, hey, we need you to deliver this more often than once a quarter. We had to elevate our engineering culture to get it done. So if you want to, engineering culture is an outcome of trying to solve really hard engineering problems. And working together as an organization, hey, how do we how do we engineer better to solve these business problems better? And that's that's the approach I would take, because engineering culture without focus on business is pointless. But focusing on why can't we solve this business problem and then do it with engineering? I, I was just reading a draft paper by Gary Groover, and if you don't know who Gary Groover is, I would Google Gary Groover HP laser jet. Gary's an amazing guy. But they took the same approach at HP. They weren't trying to improve engineering culture. They were just trying to improve business delivery and their ability to sell printers. And it elevated the engineering culture because they had to solve really hard engineering problems. And then what they did was like, we don't know how to solve this problem. You're the engineers. Please solve this problem. That sounds like engineering culture is an output of those I think, cult think culture is always an outcome. Right. I mean, you can hire for the right culture and you can say, we want this culture. You can behave this way, but if you can change culture if you change behavior. So, yeah, yeah I think engineering culture is, a, is the outcome of trying to solve really hard problems. And, and that's been my experience. Anyway. But get, getting from that is basically impossible to change culture if you can't change behavior of the people. Yeah. So at some point you might need to make hard decisions. Yeah. We're in our last 15 minutes of the show. I would last, like to ask anybody who has like a last question for Brian or for the panel, to post them now if you have any other comments. Otherwise, we can wrap up slowly. Any topic that, Brian, you think we should cover before we close? We have a few more questions, but I want to sort of gauge the temperature here with you. How are you doing? 
I'm doing fine. Now, I mean, just going back to this, this the blog post, I mean, the reason I wrote that, I'm always trying to, because I know the positive impact that working this way has on teams, on businesses, it's been my experience that I, I, you know, I need to figure out different ways to communicate to different personas about why this is so important, right? Yeah. Kent Beck has said something similar recently. I, I spoke to him a few a few weeks ago for the first time <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a founder's call. He keeps reiterating and, it's, and it keeps gets it keeps getting lost in the weeds because it's not about X unit. Like he, he keeps mentioning, he keeps repeating now, you know, after 20, 30 years that TDD is a methodology to manage your anxiety, to not understanding what it is you're building. And that's the important part. It's managing that anxiety. No, I and mean, people get lost in the weeds all this. You know, I, I talk to, you know, there's, I, you should only be using trunk-based development. Just full stop. But trunk-based development is not the point. Trunk-based development is a is the tool that you need to use to get to the point, which is rapid feedback, right? The problem is that the requirements are wrong, or we're going to misunderstand them, or they're going to change before we can deliver. And you and if you can make your system more efficient, into and you can drop the cost of change. You can afford to run experiments. You can get feedback on smaller things before you invest too much. You can get a higher level of confidence that number one, it's not gonna break, and number two, it's the right solution, right? It, it, you know, it, it's just the, the all the, the agile industrial complex crap about how to scrum better, I don't care. Number one, most people, you know, oh, we're gonna do scrum, we should deliver every two weeks. The Agile Manifesto was written 23 years ago and two weeks was really fast back then. I was delivering five to 10 times a day in 2016. Come on, level up, right? Yeah. To production, not to some staging environment, to mm -hmm. actual users using my stuff in distribution centers. It costs a lot of money when they went down. Ultimately, what keeps getting misconstrued is that Agile is not a management process. Agile is a process that takes away guesswork out of the sort of the, yeah, the pipeline that we're the, yes, we, the we are professionals. History. We are doing engineering. We want to actually produce something that touches the real world, and we want data from the real world so that we correct what we're doing and how we're doing it. That's the, yeah, whole, the, point. the whole point. Yes, the whole point is to deliver more of the right thing, less of the wrong thing. And the only way we can do that is to find out, right? Yeah. You can't test better to get there. In isolation, Just, especially in like a fake environment the, the, that is. Tests, tests only tell you what you think you know. Yeah. Production tells you reality. And then you adjust the test to match production. Exactly. The test for test is prod, right? Ship it and find out. I, I would like to, to show this one. Quick, real quick, because this is uh, pretty interesting where people um, always make these uh, distinctions between enterprises, startups, traditional, small to medium-sized businesses. Brian, what, what is your experience? But what differences are there between small, medium-sized and enterprises and when it comes to cultures? Well, let's see. So my, my experience so far is that, that large enterprises are actually a whole bunch of medium-sized or small businesses. So, you know, that's like I, I tell people, yeah, we were doing continuous delivery at Walmart. Well, that means, in, or if you go to any conference where they're talking about DevOps or CD or things, and they're talking large enterprise, the whole enterprise is not doing that, right? I mean, there's segments of the enterprise that are seeing success doing working this way. That's what they're saying. That's what I was saying. 
it's just better, right? That's that's just the reality. Is that the culture? You, you, like I said, at Walmart, you have this overriding thing. But if one VP or one director was not following that culture, that their area was going to be following the culture that they were leading, right? It was up to everybody to hold everybody accountable, or he wind up with this fractured culture where some area go, no, this is a culture we want, or it would just wind up that way. I don't think that that's that's really the difference is that you can have people talking about it, but ultimately you're just left with a whole bunch of small and medium-sized businesses, mm-hmm. in my opinion, unless you're very, very small. It's really easy to have the right culture in the business where the whole business is the size of a team. Sometimes I have this 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 idea that enterprises with the idea of DevOps, and when we read about DevOps, the definition of DevOps, they actually try to get, let's say, teams into smaller units again to make them more manageable. So is it mm-hmm. like that actually a small business isn't that far away from enterprise teams, let's say. Let's say you have a small yeah. business which is actually reflecting what's what should be a DevOps team within a company, a larger company. Could is that yeah, is I, there I, some truth? No, no I, I would agree. I mean, that was step like I said, like in logistics, that was step number one was to get down to relatively small teams. They were still too big, but I'm talking, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 people. Actually, when I joined, that's the size of a team because that's about as many as a manager can manage. It's about 12 to 15 people. Right? But that's, yeah, that's at least what I've seen is that you you wind up with all these small teams. And then you've got team cultures, which you can roll up to whatever that's being incentivized by their direct leadership or their leader, you know, depending on how many levels you have. It's generally not whatever's being incentivized by the CTO because it's too distant. And oftentimes we also see in these kinds of co- in these kinds of companies that are growing, that are growing vertically and laterally. Sometimes the teams separate themselves on purpose to perhaps pursue a different culture than, you know, perhaps we would have a more bureaucratic system in an older part of the company. But you're you need to run some kind of new experiment against a different part of a market, or at least different demographic on the market. Yeah, and, and, and as a as a leader, it's really important to keep an eye on it and make sure that yeah. the culture doesn't become toxic. Exactly. exactly. Because I've seen that as well, where a team will be spun up to go and do some adventurous new thing, right? Out of a hack that they went on a hack day. And they, they go off and do a thing, but then they completely isolate them from everybody else, They you know, because we're the special people. And instead of learning things to bring back, they just became this toxic little island over here that was their own special club, right? They had the wrong attitude. And so you, as a leader, you just have to keep track and make sure that everybody is marching towards the common organizational goals and that people are still cross-pollinating and helping each other. Like in Defense Unicorns, we cross-pollinate all the time. We have very intentional random meetings of people just to just to have coffee together for half an hour and, and chat about not work. Yeah. So you're always talking to people that you don't work with every day. Good, good. So I don't know who this is because I don't see the comment on LinkedIn, but actually this is an agreement and mentioned that they've, oh, I just read it. People get lost in the weeds to all of this. This is, Why the sentiments of we need more engineering rigor uh, resonates with me, it's also something Dave Farley emphasizes in his book, Modern Software Engineering, which is true. It may be a good recommendation to read. So there's a lot of true things about this 
the good things about the conversation we had today in this book as well. I think if you look in the front, I may have, because Dave sent me a pre-production copy of that. And my response was that this should be required reading for everybody graduating with a, a software degree. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, you shouldn't even graduate without reading this book, basically. It's such a good book. I can't recommend that. It's, it's one of the most important books I've seen in the last decade. Are there any other book recommendations, Brian? Because we do get a lot of questions every week. If I want to dig more, if I don't want to watch the stream all the time and just sit down with a book and learn something very practical. Because, uh, so it depends on your persona, right? So if you're a software developer, I would also read Accelerate, the especially Appendix A of Accelerate. If you are trying to lead development teams, I think Jonathan Smart, Senior Safer Happier is a really, really good book. Team Topologies, if you are a senior engineer um, trying to help organize a larger product effort at Team Topologies, uh, or, or manager, anybody senior enough to say, hey, we're, we're trying to structure something larger than the team. Team Topologies, I think, is a really, really good book. I'll, I'll say that we didn't have any of these books, and we were trying to do this for the first time. I'm just happy that Team Topologies came out and reflected our experience when we did it. It's like, oh, we were doing it correctly. Awesome. But, but even though you didn't read it, you had you had an important enough problem and a high enough budget to go out and say, we need to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got to support the business or you're going to go out. I, I think those two books are really, really good. If you're a software developer, read the Unicorn Project. And if you're a, an engineering manager, read the Phoenix project. Is there any advice that you've learned? You, you said you're in, in, the, in the industry, you know, to maybe close up on this idea. You've yeah. been in the industry for 30 years. Is there any advice that you had to unlearn that is no longer relevant? Oh yeah. Number one, tech leads can't be dictators. I used to be a dictatorial tech lead. I'm, I'm now one of the last people to talk generally when we're having a discussion as a team. Um, I'm trying to guide the conversation and I'm, I will always I, it used to be, hey, here's here's my solution. Now it's like, well, if your solution and my solution are equal, I'm going to choose yours. Uh, I had to really unlearn that behavior to deliver at a higher level, much more collaborative to, mm. for us to ship. Absolutely unlearning feature complete before I deliver. Had to unlearn that. That's a big one. I, I should have this test ready to deliver at any moment. Passing test, <laughs> one small thing. That should be always deliverable. Yeah, you know, committing like three or four days from now, you know, all of those things. And I'll tell you that Gary Groover saved me from trying to implement GitFlow and logistics at Walmart because we had random branching. I'd never heard of trunk-based development at the time. I was put in charge of the team that was, was responsible for merging 400 branches every quarter. And I was trying to bring some some structure to it. And so I found GitLow. I was like, oh, this will work. And then just before I started writing up and pushing that way, I met Gary and he told me I was wrong. And I told him he was wrong. And he, he gave me evidence that I was wrong and I was wrong. And so, yeah. And then later on, I asked Vincent to please fix his blog post because I was having too many arguments internally because other people had the same opinion I'd had originally. And they can't do CD that way. And Vincent fixed his blog post somewhat. I did. I touched a bullet. <laughs> Gary, Gary's never allowed to buy beer around me anytime I'm around. So, last Should we, four and a half minutes. We have a little bit of time. What do you want to do? We're on time. But, 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 you know, you always come so late to your book club. So maybe 
you should take this into consideration. He's the only one who's not on his book club when he starts. You know? Now, I tell you, people underestimate the importance of accelerating. But I think so it's we're reading accelerate on the book club right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what I was mentioning. I think the the, the core problem with that is it's been boiled down to the four key metrics. And number one, yeah, they were yeah. survey results. Mm-hmm. The questions were relatively vague about things like, you know, organization. Was that team? Was it your entire company? Are you talking about a thousand developers? You're talking about ten, mm-hmm. right? And they're not the point. Judging yourself against those is a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Judge yourself against the ability to deliver business value, you know, at a lower cost, more frequently, to get faster feedback. And that's what, and with more stability, more security, higher levels of compliance. Judge your ability to do that. Read Appendix A. Look at minimumcd.org. Yeah. yeah, look at minimumcd.org. These are things put together. It's like the, these are problems. If you solve these, you'll be able to do that. Just s- stop stop with focusing on door metrics. They're useful, but not for what people use them for. Yeah, the four key metrics are very are very shallow in what use the of what practical actions they sort of enable you. Because you need to have exactly those problems that those four key metrics are measuring. Well, you don't. Need, you don't. I mean, everybody has those those four problems, but you have to already understand yes. what they're telling you for them to be useful. And that has to be your current next priority. Like that has to be yeah. done. Next they are for, they are for tweaking, factor. for increasing exactly. the performance on a higher level, but they are not there to creating the foundation. It's very important yeah. to understand. Exactly. Right. Oh, great! So. I would say we had a very good session today. It was great. So I just saw that uh, most people stood with us, very interested. So we've got a lot of feedback. We will write about this, right? And we will know, we will go through the transcription. We will create clips out of that. We will basically process on the content in the next days. And yeah, now go into some of those topics a little deeper then. So you feel free to participate on those as well. And yes, so Brian, was it good? Was it a good, interesting session for you as well? It was. I appreciate the opportunity to share my perspective on this. I think it sometimes my views on this don't come out as clearly with words. They don't like a written te- written form when they do this way. But no, I appreciate the time. I'm, I'm, I'm sure many people appreciated your appearance today, just because your input is actually, let's say, it's it is somewhat influential and important for people and many more people should follow your advices just saying that out loud now because there well, are so I, many I, people out there still ignoring that and that's not good yeah, and and I'd, I'd like to be i'd like to be very clear about this my goal is that we should all be living better lives as developers and we should all be delivering better business value and be able to spend more time with our kids and more time having hobbies and less time stressing over work Right. I mean, that's my goal. I'm not trying to be influential. I just want people to, to I just want the work to suck less. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. Thank you so, so much, we Brian. Have 40 and, more seconds. And Adrian as well. Thank you so much for, for this conversation, for being on the show. Thank you for everybody jo- joining us live in chat. I, again, you ran the show for, 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 for most of it. And that's the point. This is, supposed to be like a mini conference and I always appreciate when there's people in the audience starting a discussion with each other and then we can sort of chime into that sort of 
take a peek and uh, and respond to them directly, sort of face to face in first person, rather than commenting it sort of after the fact. Mm. So this is a, this is a huge huge vote of confidence, and also gives Adrian and I more energy to sort of know that we're yeah. And and honestly, I enjoy talking about this stuff. Um, I always answer DMs. So what was the best way to reach out to you if somebody would like to continue this conversation? If you don't know me, LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. I get behind on emails. Email is not the best way. If you do know me, you have my phone number. So, so with that, thank you so much. This was amazing. Any yeah, last thank words? You guys. Yes, and everyone, have a nice evening or day, depending on the time zone. And uh, see you next Wednesday then. So goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Brian. Goodbye, audience. Goodbye, bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. We will announce the next topics in the following days. Until then, enjoy. Thank you so much.